welcome back to the Santa Cruz Baptist Podcast. I'm Drew Cunningham. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm Tyler Hurst. I'm one of the other pastors. And we are back with Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Um, here with Tyler, and Tyler preached this sermon uh, this weekend. And so we, I just want to start off by asking, Tyler, what do you hope that people walked away with? If you had one thing that you wanted them to see this week, what would that be? Yeah, uh, sort of twofold, similar to your sermon from last week. What we're seeing is uh, when you taught last week, we saw that Jesus says, because of what he has done, there's no such thing as an unclean thing. He makes all things clean, so external things can't uh, make us defiled or impure, nor can they make us pure. Uh, In this week's text, uh, he's saying no person, so there's all these laws in the Old Testament, no person is uh, any longer unclean. And in light of that, it's because we all get God's grace and forgiveness, and we're all on the same playing field as far as that goes. Yeah, so I got a little ahead of myself and even asking that question. Why don't you just... Walk mm-hmm. us through the, the basics of this text. Yeah, so this text uh, generally is referred to as the Syrophoenician woman. And what that has to do with is there's this woman, Mark gives us three descriptors of who she is. She's from the town of Tyre. She's Syrophoenician, which is an ethnic category having to do with the geographic place she's from. Uh, and she's a Gentile, specifically a, a pagan Gentile. Uh, and she comes to Jesus, requests, it says begs, Uh, that Jesus cast a demon out of her daughter, and uh, Jesus is rather dismissive, actually calls her a dog, Um, so uses a pejorative, potentially racist term to refer to her, dismisses her, but she doesn't go away. Instead, she enters into the way in which Jesus referred to her, adopts onto herself the image of dog, an unclean animal, and makes the request again in light of Jesus' power in the kingdom. And Jesus looks at her, says, well, because of how you responded to me, your daughter is, uh, your daughter is fine. The demon has gone. Uh, and then the text ends with her returning home and finding her daughter lying well in bed. Yeah, so uh, you spent a good chunk of time in the sermon kind of walking through Peter's story mm-hmm. and how... Uh, Peter whiffed on this idea mm-hmm. multiple times, and uh, you showed us that that multiple times Peter is told to not uh, declare something that God has declared cl- mm-hmm. uh, clean to be unclean. Right. Um, you showed us how Peter violated and sinned in that way, um, and then you you came back and you said, "Okay, I just spent a ton of time mm-hmm. explaining why this is wrong," and then in this text, Jesus appears to do the same thing. So why don't you just briefly um, explain that again, why what Jesus is doing is not what Peter was being accused of. Yeah, I I should start by saying uh, this particular evangelism tactic probably should not be adopted uh, in modern day. But (laughs) essentially what Jesus does is uh, he uses a term, uh, dog, he calls this woman a dog, in order to make the connection between who she is, her identity, and her state of being unclean. She's unclean because of where she's from geographically. She's unclean because the people she comes from in terms of uh, her origin, her ethnicity. And she's unclean because of her religious practice. And so Jesus's term is directed straight at that. Uh, And one of the things I think we have to remember, I didn't talk about this in my sermon, but regularly in the Gospel of Mark, we get this concept that Jesus peers into people's hearts and kind of sees where they're at. Uh, I think something similar might be happening here. 
he sees where this woman is at. And so he sort of provokes her with this term uh, to test her humility. And she responds, acknowledging her unclean, her uncleanliness, which is um, at the heart of repentance. That's what we're all doing when we repent of something. We're going, yeah, I'm unclean. In this text, she says, yes, I'm a dog, but still the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table. So mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're unclean, but still God's grace overflows from the table for us. And I think Jesus is trying to provoke her into that to see, uh, to see beyond her immediate circumstance. Yeah, I, I thought that was one of my favorite parts of the sermon, or one of the more powerful parts. You ask a question along the lines of, um, how, how will you know if Jesus is rebuking you? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't remember the exact quote, but something along those lines, like, mm-hmm. Have you opened yourself up to be called a dog by yeah. Jesus um, in a way that that changes you? Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah, um, we we tend to uh, within our like kind of Christian framework uh, try and live in sort of a vague cultural Christianity where we don't let. Um, well, I'll say it this way. Uh, if we can, we can confess sins, but if we keep on a general level, uh, then we don't really have to do a ton of the heart work involved. And that kind of Christianity is um, at best shallow uh, and at worst just utterly false. Uh, it's, us, it's us play acting something rather than actually doing the hard work of confessing and repenting mm-hmm. and turning towards righteousness. And as I was thinking about, okay, well, how do... Uh, how might we be led into true repentance, true confession? Uh, you know, we have the scriptures. The, this is God's word, God's word spoken to us, uh, and the Holy Spirit makes it alive as we read it. And so one of the things I was just thinking about is, you know, if we're not opening scripture, if when we see something in scripture that makes us uncomfortable, we just kind of skate across the top of it, or if we read scripture and uh, and we go, well, I'm David fighting, you know, my Goliaths, or mm-hmm. I'm Moses walking through my parted Red Seas, fleeing from my Pharaoh's army, uh, and we constantly put ourselves in in the place of the good guy in scripture. We're not actually letting God confront us on our sin. We might do something along the lines of, you know, well, David was a sinner, and so kind of adopt that on generally, but. Uh, really the hard work of confession is being specific. Uh, you know, where did you stumble? Where did you fall? Um, and the power in being specific is when when we're doing that, we have to really dig deep inside of ourselves, make ourselves vulnerable, and trust that God's grace, trust that the blood of Christ is going to be thick enough, robust enough uh, to cover us. Right. So if Jesus never confronts us mm-hmm. um, or rebukes us yeah. through the scriptures, then uh, we ha- are really worshiping a God in our own image yeah. uh, that looks exactly like us and never questions us. Mm-hmm. Um, you used the analogy, I thought it was fantastic, of that the scriptures should be like uh, a teenage boy holding up a, a mirror to see zits <laughs> on their face. Uh, mm-hmm. That should be a regular thing for us as Christians, uh, that we hold up the scriptures mm-hmm. and we see our warts and yeah. we see our zits and, and we uh, allow Jesus to rebuke us in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was was really powerful point. Um, so uh, every week as we prepare, there are always things that don't make it into the sermon. Uh, we've just discussed some things that did make it into the sermon, but 
Uh, what are some things this week for you that got left on the cutting room floor? You know, uh, a big one has to do with, um, I intentionally did not list out kind of in groups and out groups. So one of the primary thrusts of this text is that this woman is the, the embodiment, the personification of uncleanliness, defilement, uh, out group. Uh, there's a quote I grabbed from a commentator that he said, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody in any of the four gospels with more against her from an Orthodox Jewish perspective than this woman. Uh, and yet she comes boldly and, you know, I didn't want to get into pointing out where our divisions and distinctions come from, uh, or, or are, uh, we live in a, a really divided time. Uh, but one thing I, and so I, I think I wanted to not get really deep in the weeds on that, uh, because it would distract people from the gospel message, which was coming in the sermon. But one thing that I think is really important to acknowledge is that, you know, I focused on prejudice. We can also get into these in-group, out-group distinctions, not by being prejudiced against other people, but actually putting ourselves into certain in-groups or out-groups. Um, there are all sorts of sins, all sorts of things that can be in our past that, uh, for whatever reason, whether it's cultural, whether it's uh, our particular like upbringing, um, when we've struggled with that or dealt with that, we classify ourselves as an out-group, and we don't let God's grace get to us. So one story that you mentioned, uh, so, you know, that, that something that I, I think is really common is putting ourselves in an out group, mm-hmm. uh, living in shame and, and mm-hmm. kind of putting ourselves out. Yeah. Um, you and I were talking earlier just about the, the story of Abraham and Sodom. Mm-hmm. So how, how does that relate to that concept? Yeah. Um, so Abraham... Obviously, in Genesis, there's all sorts of fascinating things written about him, Uh, and one of the things that comes up again and again is his relationship with his sort of wayward nephew, Lot. And at one point, Lot ends up living in the city of Sodom, and God, through uh, this theophany, we talked about that a a couple, what those are a couple of weeks back, but through this theophany, appears to Abraham uh, and tells him that he is going to judge the city of Sodom, and he's going to utterly destroy it. And Abraham knows Lot is there, so he kind of freaks out a little bit. And he says, well, Lord, would you, would you destroy the city if there was 50 righteous people in it? Or would, you, or would you save the city for the sake of those 50 righteous? And God says, if there were 50 righteous people, I would, let the, I would let the city stand, but there's not. And then what happens is Abraham enters into this kind of negotiation process where he works God down from 50 to 5. And it it ends with God saying, yeah, if, the, if there's five righteous people in the city, I'll, I'll let it stand. Uh, and then the story tragically, or at least their conversation, the story goes on, but their conversation tragically ends there. And what it seems to me is happening is Abraham did not trust that the goodness, love, grace, and mercy of God was strong enough to ask one last question, which is, well, what if there's just one righteous person? Would you save this city for one righteous person? Yeah, when, when you're mm-hmm. reading that text, mm-hmm. uh, you find yourself thinking, wow, he talked him down from 50 to 5. Keep going, keep yeah. going, and yeah. then it just stops. Yeah, Abraham gives up because he doesn't trust the mercy of God, and that's what's happening when we put ourselves in these outgroups. Uh, you know, there's tons that take place just 
culturally in evangelicalism, it can be something like divorce or abortion or struggle with same-sex attraction or, you know, all sorts of, we have all these sort of um, uh, kind of token sins that are far more shameful than other sins that actually the Bible seems to take much more seriously, like say pride. Pride is an easy sin to confess uh, for many people, yet it's the sin that caused the, the downfall of Satan. But we tend to have these kind of like token sins that these ones carry more cultural weight with us. And if I'm guilty of one of those, then then Christ can't forgive me. And I put myself in an outgroup. I withdraw myself from the community of his church and from uh, opening up the word and from prayer because I don't feel clean enough to go before God. Yeah. So uh, another text, in light of what you just said, another mm-hmm. text that, that we had discussed is uh, the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also talked about the, the prodigal son. Uh, yeah. Why don't you pick one or, or the other of those and just apply it to what you just said? Yeah, uh, so the, since the Good Samaritan is more uh, pressure in terms of somebody who thinks he's in, looking down upon somebody who's out, I'll go with the other one. So the, the prodigal son, um, you have you have the story where uh, Jesus telling the story has a father with two sons, and both sons are actually going to reject the father. One's going to reject him because he's an insider. That's the older son. The younger son, though, is going to make himself an outsider. And he comes to the father uh, early in the parable uh, and asks for his share of the inheritance, essentially saying like, hey, you were you are worth more to me dead, so why don't you just give me the money? Uh, which, by the way, just to ask that is presuming upon his father's goodness. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't... His father just, if his father's not good, not kind, and not gracious, uh, he takes him to the elders and they probably stone him to death. Uh, but instead, the father divides the property, gives some to his youngest son, and his youngest son leaves and wastes it on frivolous living, uh, wastes it on, um, you know, women and drink and party uh, and all sorts of things. And then he comes to the end of himself eating uh, pig's food. Because uh, he's so hungry, he's so poor, he's so destitute and desperate that he's eating food he's supposed to be feeding to pigs, another unclean animal, interestingly enough, and decides, I'm going to go home and I'm going to ask my dad if I can be one of his servants. And on his walk home, you get this picture that he's rehearsing in his head, the sort of like, I'm sorry, please accept me, um, no longer as family, but as this. And and the son has put himself in an outgroup because he's betrayed the father's grace, treaded across the father's love. Uh, he's wandered away from the father and and he's he's left him. Uh, and then he has to come back and he's greeted rather than being cast out, rather than being hired on, but only hired on as a servant, as a lowly helper. He's He gets the best robe put on him. He has the family signet ring put on his finger, which is a uh, Jewish symbol of adoption. That's actually what Jesus is describing in that passage, is a formal yeah, so adoption ceremony. He, he can't even get the speech that he had in his Yeah, no, he out. gets the interrupted. just comes in and grabs him and celebrates him. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, The text starts and he says, you know, he the text, Jesus telling the story, gives the you know, the kid's speech, like, hey, dad, please accept me as one of your hired servants. I've, you know, sinned against you. I've sinned against God. And meanwhile, as Jesus is telling the story, you get this image of the father waving to the other hired servants going, hey, 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 bring the robe, bring the, you know, slaughter the fatted calf. And he's just, he's not even listening to the son's 
you know, I'm sorry speech that he spent his entire walk from this distant country preparing. Uh, he's just so excited to, to have him back. Yeah, so within that and within the text you preached this weekend, mm-hmm. like what, what do you want to say to someone who is living in shame and has mm-hmm. put themselves in an outgroup? What do they need to understand about God? One of the things that I think about is the characters we run into in the Bible. Uh, so Paul is a murderer of Christians, a persecutor of the church of God. Uh, Jesus associates himself so closely with the church that when Jesus confronts Paul, the resurrected Jesus, when he confronts Paul, he says, why are you persecuting me? That's mm-hmm. who Paul is. It's hard to imagine somebody further from God. Uh, and yet Paul is going to become the primary author of the New Testament on a human level because the grace of God is so thick, because the mercy of God covers everything. And so, I mean, one of the things we have to think about is when we put ourselves in these outgroups, and, you know, if you're listening to this and you struggle with um, just an immensity of ungodly shame and guilt about something you've done, something in your past, the thing to keep in mind is that what you are doing is downplaying the gravity and weight of the cross. Mm-hmm. It's a diminishment of the cross. You know, the blood of Christ can save murderers. It can save the sexually immoral. It can save people who have had abortions. It can save people who have gone through divorces. It can save liars. It can save thieves. It can save everybody regardless of their sin if they repent and place their faith in Christ. There's nothing that it can't... There's no sin which Jesus says, oh, yeah, you know, the, the cross can't cover that. You... You sin so bad, I can't get you. This is totally false. Um, and actually, I think that a lot of people have, well, I should say it this way, a lot of people still need to repent of diminishing the cross. They've mm-hmm. felt so much shame and guilt, and they've let Satan lie to them about this. And they, because of that, keep themselves apart from community. They don't get into God's word, and they don't pray because they think they're especially unworthy. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, and we talked about this a little bit at our uh, first Kalos group the other night. Um, that you know, there this isn't to say there aren't still consequences mm-hmm, for yeah. our sin, but there's no more condemnation. So Romans eight one, there is therefore now no condemnation for mm-hmm. those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah. And the other other thing that I immediately think of is Jesus's words on the cross: mm-hmm. "It is finished." Yeah. That whenever we uh, for those who are believers, for those who have repented and believed in Christ uh, as their only hope of salvation, um, for believers to sit in shame is to not believe that it was actually finished. Mm-hmm. We're saying, ah, it was, it was kind of done, but I'm adding to what Jesus did on the cross by mm-hmm. my shame and by guilt. I'm trying to, to pay yeah. for my own sin through guilt or through shame. But Jesus says it, it is finished. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the things that we we try and press in when we look at texts that deal with the Pharisees, is the Pharisees are trying to solve their problems of atonement through works mm-hmm. that are just not going to get there. They mm-hmm. can't keep the law well enough. But Christ kept the law so perfectly that no matter what you've done, repentance and faith will save you. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. So as we're kind of wrapping up our time, um, what are some resources that you would recommend alongside this weekend's sermon? 
Uh, one of the first ones that comes to mind is you mentioned our Kalos group. So that's uh, an intensive discipleship group for women. And we're using a book for it that is not written specifically for women. So the book that we're using for that is Gospel Wakefulness by Jared Wilson. That That's an excellent book. The first couple of chapters really get at uh, this idea that we've talked about here in the podcast. But Another one uh, that really stands out to me is Gentle and Lowly um, by, I always get them confused. It's not Ray Ortland and it's not Gavin Ortland. That's the Dane Ortland one, right? I'm not sure if it's Gavin or Dane. It's uh, um, uh, an amazingly godly family where one father's faithfulness, it's Dane. Uh, One father's faithfulness has uh, produced just some children and grandchildren of immense character uh, and theological thoughtfulness, but uh, Gentle and Lowly is uh, came out last year or early this year, and it really is taking kind of the Puritan style of writing, which the Puritans would grab onto a single verse, and the way Dane describes it is they grab onto a verse and they would just wring out everything they could get out of that verse. And Dane Ortland here is looking at a verse where Jesus describes himself, uh, and that description is that he is uh, compassionate and gentle and lowly, um, and that, that he's gracious to sinners. And so mm-hmm. he's for, you know, 16 chapters grabbing hold of that concept and just wringing out everything that he can for us. Yeah, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's probably my, my favorite book that I've read this year. Mm-hmm. Highly, highly recommend it. Um, another book that I would recommend uh, is Jesus and the Gospels by Craig Blomberg. Uh, another cutting room floor thing that Tyler mm-hmm. and I discussed that didn't make it into the sermon. It's just um, stories like like this where Jesus calls this woman a dog um, if the Gospels were edited in any way, mm-hmm. um, later editors in history would have edited out stories like this. Um, there's mm-hmm. no way they would have included it because it, it can be embarrassing that Jesus says something right. like this. And yet here it is. It's in our text. And so mm-hmm. texts like these um, lend themselves to uh, us trusting that the scriptures are the way that they were were written originally. And so Craig yeah. Blumberg, um, in one of his chapters on the book of Mark, really walks through not just this text, but other texts like it um, that are, are seemingly embarrassing, but there for a, a very real purpose. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you're a student of the Gospels, Jesus in the Gospels by Craig Blumberg, really helpful book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one that a lot of seminaries require for their New Testament reading, but it's um, Dr. Blomberg is just a really accessible author, writes very easily. Uh, yeah, and it's it's a an immense apologetic that the gospel authors are so brutally honest with their own shortcomings in order to magnify Christ. And when we see that, uh, we can trust these things. I mean. Peter, who, as you pointed out in my sermon I talked about, his just complete like failure to understand this on uh, for a, quite a while, uh, even after the resurrection of Christ, um, he is the primary source for Mark's gospel. Mm-hmm. And so this story and the story before it, where we're talking about unclean things, uh, that's something Peter struggled with, and he wanted to make sure Mark included that in here. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these, these stories are there because Jesus actually said it. Yeah. Um, it's not that, you know, a later editor, um, 
you know, mm-hmm. put it in, mm-hmm. uh, that'd be highly unlikely. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's amazing that it's still there. If there mm-hmm. were later editors that it didn't get edited out, it, the, the most likely scenario is that Jesus actually said this. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's, you know, these are, are things that give us trust mm-hmm. in the truthfulness of scripture, uh, that, that these stories w- are the way that they happened and mm-hmm. that they were communicated correctly from Peter to Mark mm-hmm. to us. Right. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for your time. Uh, Again, we hope that this time has been helpful for you. And um, as always, if you have further questions about this weekend's sermon or or even next weekend's sermon after you hear it, um, you can send it to us at office at santacruzbaptist.com. Until next week, have a great, great week, and we will see you again. Bye.